The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Ask Your Lawyer show. I am your host, Tyra Iqbal of Liberty Law Solicitors, and with me in the studio today are two wonderful barristers. We have Leslie Manley and Kiara Maddox of Church Court Chambers. Um, For those of you that do not know, Leslie and Kiara are both highly experienced barristers at Church Court Chambers, and they specialise in criminal and civil law cases. And today we will be discussing mental health and the criminal justice system. So my guest today, Leslie, has special expertise in representing defendants with mental illness, mental impairment and autism. And she has also written published articles on this point. Kiara also has extensive experience in cases involving mental health, fitness to plead and fitness to stand trial issues. And she, sorry, she excels in representing young and vulnerable clients. So thank you both for joining me on the show tonight. Um, Good evening. (laughs) Thanks for having us back. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, so let's just start this off with what exactly is mental health? What does that mean? Um, Well, I mean, people are probably quite um, aware of their own physical health. Um, You know, whether if you have a broken bone, for example, you go to the doctor. Um, People might be slightly less um, cognizant or aware of their mental health. But I mean, it it basically can be a a wide variety and, and across a wide spectrum of disorders. It could be something quite serious, such as a psychosis or um, a defined mental illness, or it could be something which um, people might have more experience with, such as depression, um, eating disorders. So, I mean, there's a huge spectrum of mental health disorders, and um, uh, people might or might not be aware that they're even suffering from one. Right, okay. And can you give me any examples of what a mental illness might be? So I know you mentioned depression. Can you give me any other examples? Of... Well, really, with mental illness, as it were, the brain really is just another organ in your body. So um, it can go wrong the way anything else can go wrong for all sorts of reasons. Um, one example that Kiara and I come across regularly are people who have who suffer from schizophrenia who maybe uh, haven't been diagnosed or haven't been given the right medication or sometimes don't take the medication um, that's that's a serious but treatable illness but that's often um, a, a person with that illness can can come to us as a client um, drug-induced psychosis some people react very badly to certain drugs Mm -hmm. some people just experience a high or or as they call it but um for some people it can induce um yeah psychosis and psychotic behavior that's just two examples really right okay thank you for those examples how might a mental health problem affect someone that is charged with a crime Um, Well, it can affect them in a a whole variety of ways. Just as we talk about a spectrum of disorders and seriousness of mental health problems, there's also a spectrum of ways that that might impact on your ability to um, engage in criminal proceedings that have been brought against you or as a victim of crime. So, um, for example, it might be as serious as 
being found unfit to stand trial, which means, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that in greater detail today, but um, that on a very basic level would mean that you're not capable of understanding the case against you. Or it could be that um, certain adjustments have to be made for you to follow the trial process properly, for your lawyers to be able to engage with you, take instructions. Um, Or it might just be having someone there to assist you in giving evidence and understanding the case against you. So mental health in the criminal justice system plays out in a whole different variety of ways. So it's, um, it's an incredibly complicated area of what we have to do every day. And we're lawyers, we're not mental health practitioners, obviously mm. that goes without saying. Um, but we really do have to um, come, I mean, I, I, it's, it's almost becoming a daily problem. So many people within the criminal justice system have mental health problems. Yeah. And of course that number's growing as there are cuts to um, local services for mental health um, treatment uh, and prognosis facilities. So... Um, It it really is a huge area of what we end up having to deal with day to day. Um, And are there any laws in place that recognise mental health problems and offer protection for those people who are suffering from any mental health conditions? Well, excuse me, what can happen is that if, if a person has a mental illness, for example, they can be seen quite early on at magistrate's court, often diverted into away from the criminal justice system. Sometimes that's not so because what what's happened can be very serious. You know, mm-hmm. um, we've done cases involving attempted murders and things with where people have suffered um, serious mental illness. Um, in terms of... If you mean by protecting them, ensuring that people are dealt with justly in the system, um, as Kiara has already mentioned, the, the whole issue of fitness to plead, um, and it's often confusing for people because it doesn't just mean, well, can you say guilty or not guilty? Mm-hmm. Are you fit to plead actually means are you fit to to enter a plea, but also are you fit to stand trial? Mm-hmm. And, and that, if I talk about mental illness, for example, um, that usually um, comes to the lawyer's attention quite early on. And then you have to instruct qualified psych- psychiatrists or doctors registered under the Mental Health Act which again often um, for those representing people can can be confusing. Sometimes people instruct psychologists and rarely is that, that the right route. You should start off with psychiatrists. Um, but what I should say is it isn't just mental illness that um, the law tries to protect people. Um, there are people who suffer from mental impairment um obviously i let Kiara get worded (laughs) but um and that that can be more difficult because if a person is having a psychotic episode or something it it can be easily picked up on yeah if someone's got 
long-standing brain damage from being assaulted or being in an accident, they often still can function in society. And it doesn't really cross people's minds that actually there's a a real problem in in their ability to cope with the trial. Mm -hmm. But... That, that's, yeah. Well, I think Le- Leslie touched on it. It's the, the Mental Health Act, of course, which is there, and that governs the way that people with mental impairments are dealt with um, outside of the court system. So it de- it deals with how they will be treated in hospitals or with treating physicians. But there are also certain sections of the Mental Health Act which assist people who are going through the criminal justice system. Um, so it confers powers on the courts mm-hmm. to um, perhaps divert away from criminal proceedings as Leslie's touched upon um, judges have certain um, sections of the mental health act which enables them to um, compel people to go for diagnosis or for treatment which might not necessarily mean that they would then um, have to go through the trial process um, but there are also then parts of the mental health act that deal with treatment following a conviction um, or following a certain disposal of the case so um, there's a mental health act in place and we're also a common law system which means that mm-hmm. we go on past precedence of cases so a lot of the mental health law that we apply in criminal proceedings is um, can be found in a series of cases um, and I, th- I think we're, again we're going to go through those in slightly more detail because they relate to different aspects of possible defences um, or the it, the issue of fitness plead, as again Leslie was mentioning earlier. So mm-hmm. there's a huge um, gamut of law, legislation, and case law that judges have at their disposal to deal with people who have mental health problems. Okay, thank you. And we've been discussing fitness to plead. If someone wasn't fit to plead, how do the courts actually deal with that? So if a person is unfit to plead, so I think first off we're solicitors will probably be the first port of call so um you would hope and this is not always the case because people again as leslie said it doesn't necessarily um make itself evident you know you can have certain clients who will come in uh, in the middle of a psychotic episode of course that's easier for us to um flag up and then you have people who have latent underlying mental health problems which they've probably lived successfully with for years And it's never been an issue for them. And of course, those are the things that take slightly longer to come up to the surface and for us to perhaps acknowledge or or recognise. And and there are some cases where you could be on the day of trial and all of a sudden something, you know, an alarm bell starts ringing and and this person has been able to kind of manage a trial process. Um, But so, I mean, what would initially happen? Hopefully a solicitor would flag it up. Um, It might be that there's some underlying medical material that's already at hand, so somebody would know that they suffer from a a diagnosable illness mental or mental health condition. Um, And if not, perhaps it would be your barrister that picks it up over a course of conferences prior to trial. Um, Once that becomes an issue and known, it's then up to your defence team to um, have it listed for a fitness to plead hearing. And that effectively would be for your lawyers to um, obtain psychiatric reports as opposed to psychologist reports, which again, Leslie's mentioned earlier. Um, And you'd need two reports from treating physicians to establish that. So um, it would involve quite a lot of preparation and it does take quite a significant amount of time. Um, And then that would be brought before the court and you would have a contested hearing, most likely if the prosecution don't agree. 
um, and a judge would then apply what's called the Pritchard criteria. Okay. Um, and talking about case law, this is an old case. It's still good law. Yeah. Um, and there are five criteria, I think, that it's assessed against. Um, do you want to take over? Um, yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. Um, well, what, what then happens is um, that, that usually these things are agreed. Occasionally you can have a dispute um, as to whether or not somebody is fit to plead. So as we were chatting earlier, I, I said when I first came to the bar, shows how old I am, but when I first came to bar, you had the fitness to plead trial in front of a jury. That then changed, it became streamlined. And so it's now in front of a judge who decides, is, is the person not fit to plead? Now, usually you'll have two, well, you have to have two psychiatrists to say that a person isn't fit to plead uh, so that the judge can make that determination. Um, I have heard cases where two psychiatrists have said that and the prosecution psychiatrist is of a different view. And I have, most of the time, it's, it's agreed or the judge will find in the defendant's favour if you've got two reports. But I have had uh, cases where the judge has said, no, that the, the other psychiatrist is, is correct, actually, and you will stand trial. So if you are found not fit to plead, what then happens is that you that there is then a jury impaneled to decide if you did the act complained of. And again, um, most of the time, the jury are going to find that the person did. Most of the time, although I have had occasions where they have found that not proved uh, for, for various reasons, but most of the time. And then if they're found to have done the act complained of, um, there are then... Uh, sanctions then um, to really to assist with mental health so they will be absolutely discharged or under a supervision order or or in more serious cases sent, sent off uh, for a longer period of time in hospital. Okay and um, if someone has been sentenced for an offence and it later comes to light that they did suffer from a mental health condition, but this wasn't acknowledged or known at the time of their trial, what happens then? Well, it, I mean, it, it would depend whether the diagnosis would perhaps um, give a defence in law, in which case it could be that the um, person who has been convicted wants to appeal, um, and in which case it would be a case of preparing... So obtaining medical reports to support any basis of appeal and it'd be a fresh evidence appeal. Um, if it's a case of someone being sentenced and wanting to revisit that because their mental health condition makes them in a um, not suitable for um, a prison sentence, for example, again, that would be an appeal. But one would hope that if someone's um, mental health condition come, becomes apparent when they're in the prison service 
or afterwards, then that's something that can be dealt with as part of their sentence there. I mean, there are hospital wings in prison mm-hmm. um, and, and prison authorities also have the power to section people under the Mental Health Act. I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not au fait with the sections that they would use. Yeah. Pro- it would probably be a more straightforward section two or three, um, which are pa- which is a power that's available to section individuals, not through the court process. Um, and they could then um, have them hospitalised un- under that hospital. But again, it would depend on the seriousness of it. Mm-hmm. Um, an example of a, a case where medical evidence has been used to support a mental health defence is that diminished responsibility, which is a defence to murder. What um, does um, diminished responsibility mean? So in, in the cases of murder, you would be, it's a partial defence, so you would be acquitted of the murder but convicted of manslaughter um, because effectively what the determination of the court is that you weren't capable of Um, You didn't form the mental element that's necessary for murder, which is the intention to kill or cause grievous bodily harm. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is quite a specific defence. But a a recent case of that, which your listeners might be um, aware of, it it gained a lot of publicity, was the case of Sally Challen, who um, had her murder conviction quashed and replaced with one of manslaughter, where it was found that she had been a victim of coercive control. So this hadn't been a defence at trial, um, I think she ran diminished responsibility, but coercive control was a new offence. Mm-hmm. So they've subsequently sought further medical evidence to support an appeal for that reason. So, of course, that's an example of a time where someone's been able to revisit their mental health status following a conviction. Okay, and we've touched on diminished responsibility and what that means. Could you tell me what it means to be legally insane? Well, <laughs> to be legally insane is different from being um, medically insane. You have to, there's a, a case called McNaughton, and that really, that's quite an old case, but that really sets the uh, criteria. And so you have to be suffering from disease of the mind, defect of reason, so you don't know the nature and quality of your act, and that you don't know. It's wrong, as a po- I mean, by um, against the law. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we were looking earlier at a case uh, where a man had he he was mentally unwell and he'd poisoned his wife, but after having done so, he said to the police, um, "I expect I'll hang for this," which kind of um gave away the fact that he did actually know that, that what he was doing was wrong. was wrong yeah um in, insanity is is also a defense unlike diminished responsibility which is solely a defense in murder mm. um insanity is an, a, an, a defense which is available for all offenses including strict liability offenses and i think that's perhaps something that people get wrong um, so harassment, for example, just as uh, harassment without violence, that's a strict liability offence. And for years, people thought you couldn't run insanity mm. as a defence. But recently, there's been a case of the Crown and Loke, and that disproves that. So again, as, as Leslie was saying, you have to be able to show that um, the person didn't know that it was legally wrong as opposed to just morally wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a, a defence that can be used for strict liability offences as well, which is rather unusual because... 
the whole purpose yeah. of strict liability is that you don't usually have any other defences that you can run. Um, but but that's something to be aware of because I think um, a lot of legal practitioners aren't aware of it. I've had a case recently where um, it was at the magistrate's court and we had argued it and the district judge um, didn't know and, and actually told told me at the start of the trial that it wouldn't be a defence that was available and I had to point him out to case law. So, you know, that legal practitioners get it wrong all the time um, and I think it's something yeah. that people probably need a lot more training about. Yeah, I think that's um, really interesting about training because coming back to something Kiara mentioned earlier, which was um, things aren't always evident, shall we say, and you asking about what happens if after a case mm-hmm. um, they they find there was there was something, um, particularly, I think with mental impairment, you can see a client at the police station, at the magistrate's court, even at the Crown Court. And it can only sometimes be, like Kara said, on the day of trial even, hopefully you will find out before that, that there is something really wrong. Um, for instance, a client can have a conference with you where they seem to engage and understand. Then you have another conference and they'll say, I don't remember any of this and then you you have to think well why don't you remember mm-hmm. um the case i had last year the client was found fit to plead but it was only our he had to have an intermediary and it was only after i think about two conferences that he he began to say he didn't understand things that he had appeared to understand before and we just had an idea that there was something wrong. And I, I said, have you ever been in an accident? And he said, oh, yes. That's why I had to leave school, because I was run over and I can't, mm. I could never read after that. I could ne- And then everything changed then, you know, getting IQ assessed, everything. But it was not evident, not for quite some time. He managed to mask if you call it mask, I'm sure he wasn't doing mm. it deliberately, but he managed to, yeah, navigate the system, uh, you know, un- until the point when he just couldn't anymore. He had to admit he couldn't read. He had to um, admit he couldn't remember, which, which were not bad things. Um, it, it just, he didn't want to, to say to anybody before that, you see. So it, It's interesting because... What you have to remember with mental health is that people deteriorate and people improve. So, for example, you know, it mm-hmm. might be that yeah. it, you, don't, you don't notice something that comes to light later, but it could also be that you've had a client that's fit mm-hmm. to plead um, and you've never had any concerns about it, but perhaps that has a known or unknown underlying mental health condition which deteriorates rapidly between your first hearing and your trial. So it could be that, that yeah. you know, it's it's been a worsening condition and, and the position's changed, in which case you keep things under review. Or equally, you could have a client that's unfit and it's if the Crown don't want to drop it, for example, and the person's getting treatment, um, they might say, we'll come back in six months and see then if that person's fit to plead and someone's mental health condition could have improved. 
Mm. So it's a completely movable feast. It doesn't mean just because you're unfit one day. That's right. You'll be unfit forever. (laughs) But a lot of people might also be under the misconception that um, being unfit to plead is is a way of dodging. Um, responsibility for your crime or that members of the public might see it as a light option or that defence barristers use as some kind of tactic to try and get your client off. Um, It's not. The implications of being found unfit to plead can be really um, quite severe. Mm -hmm. If you're found unfit and you go through the um, trial, I'll use the word, Mm -hmm. but the trial process to determine whether you've committed Mm -hmm. the act, one of the ways that you can be dealt with is by way of a hospital order. Now, a hospital order, um, you know, you, you might never you might never get out of that. Um, a hospital order, you don't get any definitive time in custody. Um, the initial remand, well, treatment period would be for six months, but that's kept under review and then it would be reviewed yearly. So you don't get released from that mm-hmm. until um, treating physicians think that you're better. So it's not a, a get out of jail card for free. It's actually something that has very, very serious consequences and it's never a decision that your legal team take lightly. Um, Okay, thank you very much for that. Um, We will be taking a quick break now, but if you join us back, we'll be discussing more on mental health and mental health conditions and the criminal justice system after the break. So stay tuned, guys. You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programmes from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Welcome back to the Ask Your Lawyer show. I am your host, Tara Iqbal of Liberty Law Solicitors. And with me in the studio today are two wonderful barristers, Leslie Manley and Kiara Maddox of Church Court Chambers. Now, for those of you just joining us, before the break, we were discussing mental health and the criminal justice system. So we'll just be touching back on that topic and going over things that were said and discussing further things relevant to mental health and the criminal justice system. So what guidelines are in place for sentencing criminals with mental illnesses and or learning difficulties? Well, before the adverts, um, there are so many people now who come um, into contact with the criminal justice system who have mental health problems. So judges are becoming more and more adept at sentencing exercises um, where people do have latent me- mental health problems, either just underlying mental health problems or mental health problems that have impacted on their offending behaviour or um, have have caused them to commit the offence. So each sentencing guideline now reminds judges, so you have sentencing guidelines for different types of offences, for example, assault or um, theft, and judges are reminded as part of that sentencing exercise to always consider whether there are any mental health problems or learning difficulties which impact on the offender or have led to the commission of the offence. Um, so that's obviously always um, f- f- up front in their mind. Um, on In a lot of cases as well, again, it, it's the responsibility on the majority of occasions for the defence to raise this, but it's also picked up by the probation service or it might be something that's so self-evident to the judge. Um, you can get what's called a psychiatric report, um, which would help the judge 
determine the appropriate sentence. Of course, once the report's been prepared by a mental health professional, that will be provided to the judge with ample time ahead of your sentencing exercise. And they will then, if there's a recommendation, so for a treatment order as part of a community or a suspended sentence order, then very often a judge will take notice of that and sentence accordingly. Um, or equally, even if um, you, you've gone through a normal trial process and been convicted by a jury, um, the judge still obviously has at his or their disposal um, a mental health um, treatment requirement or indeed a hospital order. So every stage of the trial process is catered for, um, including sentencing. And, and as I said, each guideline for the separate offences does remind the judge of his obligation. Okay, so you you mentioned a report. Um, can people who suffer from a mental health condition but don't have a psychiatric or psychological report still use their mental health condition as a defence? Well, you wouldn't get very far. <laughs> I think that, that's part of the problem. Um, no, I mean, any uh, proper defence that you're mounting would require at least one um, one report from a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist depending on the nature of the um, defense that you're mounting or the or the extent of the difficulties that you have um, it would be a very brave foolish foolhardy barrister <laughs> that would take a defendant into trial without having any medical um, ex expert evidence to rely on because however much we can make submissions and advocate on behalf of our client. We aren't mental health um, practitioners. We're not experts, and and a jury will always have to jury or judge, depending on on how the um, trial process is going. Um, will need to rely on the evidence of an expert to come to a fair and just decision. Okay, and um, before the break, we were discussing whether. Um, not a person is fit to stand trial and what the courts can do so if somebody is unfit to stand trial what criteria is in place to to actually help the courts deal with this or to um, figure it out well we, we mentioned before about the Pritchard criteria so mm -hmm. that's an old case um, and it's something it sets down five criteria that the mental health practitioner has to address in a report for a judge to find um a defendant unfit to, to plead so mm -hmm. it's um plead with understanding is the first criteria so that means entering a guilty or not guilty plea but understanding what those words mean and what they mean specifically related to the charge on the indictment um ability to follow proceedings now this is often where um, a, a defendant might come unstuck actually because they might be able to understand when you're in direct um, conference with them or they have somebody there who's able to go through everything properly but if, you've, if you're going to have a defendant who sat at the back of court for a six six week trial um, and they're just not able to follow proceedings then of course it would be unfair to try them um, challenging a juror I think that's quite an, an old-fashioned mm. part of the criteria and I always think it's it's quite strange but Every defendant has a right to challenge a juror that's been called. What does that them. mean? So during the trial process, um, you will be tried by 12 of your peers. These people are picked at random um, mm -hmm. for jury service, and then they're picked randomly again to come into the courtroom and take their place in your trial. 
um, the defendant has an unqualified right to challenge a juror. So if, for example, they know somebody on the jury, they have a right to speak out. But it's just important that defendant is aware of that, that right. right that they have. Um, so, that, so that's something that, that, that has to be considered. Um, the ability to question evidence. So to understand what the evidence is and to mount proper questions and challenges and to give proper instructions to their counsel who do that. And also the final criteria is to the ability to instruct counsel. So to be able to give instructions, to know that they don't have to necessarily remain with that barrister if they feel that that barrister is not performing a good enough job. Um, that's obviously such a integral mm-hmm. part of instructing counsel because... Um, you know, if, if you're being failed by your legal team, you have to be aware of that. And that's something that you need to be able to challenge and have the wherewithal to challenge. Um, so those are the five criteria that you're you assessed under. Meet. Okay. Yeah. And that will be a decision for your treating psychiatrist or an expert. Mm-hmm. And then the judge would use those findings to satisfy themselves as to whether or not you're fit to plead. Okay. And what about... The clients that may have a mental health condition but don't recognise it, however, their legal team feel like they they do have a mental health condition or something is quite wrong with this client and maybe they need to have a psychiatric report or a psychological report, uh, but the client is adamant that they don't suffer from anything. What what do you do in that sort of situation? <laughs> um, often... With clients who are not willing to accept this, they can be persuaded to to get assessed. Um, Often they'll say, well, I will get assessed, just to show that there isn't anything wrong. Mm -hmm. And um, because a lot of people fear diagnosis, actually, they fear it because of old social stigma. Stigma, Uh, yeah. Stigma, that's why... So really, increasing acceptance of the fact that your brain, like your kidneys can go wrong and nobody will stigmatise you. But when mm. it's mental health, you know, people are very, they're more understanding nowadays, I think. There's much more awareness about about yeah. it. Um, so often they will do. Um, the court can often... Um, the judge can say, you know, I'm ordering a report. When people refuse to co- completely cooperate to the point they won't see the doctor and storm out, you know, for instance, if they're in custody and the court's ordered a report and they won't cooperate at all, mm-hmm. then that makes everything mm-hmm. extremely complex and difficult. Yeah. Um, I think... You mentioned a case to me earlier. (laughs) I think we've all had um, clients who who have been reluctant to accept that they have mental health difficulties. Um, As Leslie said, I mean, there has been historically huge stigma that's been attached to um, a mental health diagnosis. Things are getting slightly easier. People are becoming more au fait with um, the varying types of mental illness. Um, and, and I think people slowly will come around to, to being less ashamed of it. But it, it also wouldn't surprise people to think that people who are in the grips of a psychosis or mental health, serious mental health condition are 
not aware that they are suffering with one you know that's mm. the reality that they're living with that's why you have these defenses mm. available to people in the first place because people aren't aware that they are mentally unwell and that they're probably acting in ways that are um legally wrong um but yeah that there was a case recently um a long-running case and it's it's always very very sad but the behavior was so extreme and so evident to people outside of the situation that there was a an underlying mental health condition but the um the defendant just wouldn't accept it and it you know the, the, these conversations took place over months and months and there were various court hearings and different judges and different barristers and different solicitors and um you know people like that can be written off as difficult but in fact more often than not mm. there is a reason that people behave in this way um but but that was a situation where the individual just couldn't accept that they were unwell um because mm -hmm. that would uh, effectively mean that they'd been unwell for upwards of 40 to 50 years that their whole life had been lived as yeah. somebody with a mental health condition yeah. and and that must be a terrifying thing to confront um and the the sad reality of it is that you know we're not offering solutions to these things i mean we're helping in terms of criminal proceedings potentially or hopefully things that are discovered during criminal um, proceedings mean that people can access help and things can improve for them but a lot of the time it's um that they they are then going into a very scary future um, so it's it's not surprising that we come across so many people that are reticent about accepting their mental health conditions. Um, and for the for those people that are sort of reluctant to accept that they have got a mental health condition, or maybe those people that are unaware that they do, but say their family members are aware and they make it known to the legal team, what can the legal team then do with that information? Can they still use that despite the fact that the client themselves is adamant that they don't suffer from any mental health conditions or what ha what happens in those situations Let leslie and i were talking about this during the break actually because it's probably very important that your listeners um are aware that they have some power in helping family members in the criminal justice system who do have mental health problems mm. because you know very often they're the people that have direct contact with them every day and um, they will have known them for significant periods of time mm -hmm. um they might even know um whether someone's got a diagnosed mental health condition but perhaps doesn't want to be um frank about it mm -hmm. outside yeah. of a family situation yeah. or something and then you know they they can assist they can um approach someone's legal team um and who can then make their own investigations now obviously everyone's medical records are personal and private to them um, people have to give their consent to have their medical records accessed by their legal team. We can't just go in roughshod and, and force people into disclosing that information. But it would give um, it would help give legal teams a steer, and and it is important that people know that they have that that power available to them. That if they want to help a family member that they see is struggling, um, that's something that they can do. I think with that issue um it, the case that Chiara mentioned with the person maybe having been ill for 40 or 50 years that's really tragic often with younger people they will have come into contact with the criminal law 
they they may have had school issue all sorts of issues and when if they have cooperated and got a psychiatric report for some of them the relief to them because it's they've finally been seen by a proper consultant forensic psychiatrist who's got a diagnosis i had one young client got a diagnosis it was treatable and it was really the answer to to his past you know it was the answer to why he had been mm-hmm. behaving in that way but i think with families um because as as Cara said earlier, you know we're not doctors. None of none of us are doctors. So listening to information provided by the families can change the course of a case. So particularly when there's mental impairment mm-hmm. rather than a mental illness. Um, I had one client who he lived. I won't name him, obviously, or say where he lived, but he lived with his father. All his siblings had left. He lived with his father. His mum had died. And he used to go down the pub. He had a few friends. And it was only when he got accused of a crime and um, came to the solicitor and then we were both involved with him and it was at court, his father said, oh, well, you see, my son can't lie. And we, we initially thought, well, mm-hmm. what are you, you're protecting your son, you know, mm-hmm. of course you can. He said, no, he can't lie. He just can't. And we asked, why can't he lie? And then he said, well, it's one thing, he just can't ever lie. He's not capable of lying. And then that made us think, what well he goes out and about to the pub you know what's but we then found out um when we spoke to the father said oh well this is the reason he lives with me and what had happened when he was a baby was he'd been in a pram Mm -hmm. and an accident had happened and the pram had gone crashing downstairs and thereafter he had never been the same. Mm-hmm. So we then got mental impairment specialists, learning disability specialists, and, of course, brain scan damage. Because mm-hmm. with mental impairment, I'm not saying all the time, but often you, you, you need to actually have a scan to see if there's any damage. Mm-hmm. And he was a client found not fit to plead. He wasn't fit to plead and also... In fact, the jury found he didn't do the act complained of either. But if that father hadn't said that, we'd have had a trial and he would have probably been convicted because he wasn't really able to follow. follow. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And that, um, another one I had, the client had been to the same solicitor for years, um, which was quite sad because he was still quite young. Mm -hmm. And then his aunt came to court and gave us information. And again, that I said, you know what, has this ever been looked into? And it's the same thing. He wasn't fit to plead either. And he'd had lots of cases before and nobody nobody had picked up on it. 
And I only picked up on it because of the information mm-hmm. from the auntie. That's so um, in situations like that where nobody mm. has picked up on it, whose responsibility would you say that it is to find out whether or not a client or an offender has got a mental health condition? I think, I mean, you know, we, we are there to mount the best possible defence for our client. Um or to assist them in navigating the criminal justice system. Um, There's, of course, uh, an obligation and a duty on everybody who comes into contact with that person. I mean, it starts with the police, really. Mm -hmm. If you've been arrested with an offence and there is um, clear evidence that you're suffering from a mental health condition, then obviously the responsibility Mm -hmm. should be on the police officers that are arresting you, processing you. You know, should you be seen by a medical... um, attendant at the police station you know do you need an appropriate adult for interview these are initial questions that police officers should be asking themselves now as we've already touched upon you can get to the day of trial before anyone picks up so of Mm. course that's there are going to be mistakes made there are going to be things that are overlooked it's not necessarily going to be evident to police officers that people have mental health conditions but you would hope that if there's something that is evident at that stage it would be flagged up and the appropriate procedures would be followed so an appropriate adult, for example, that's for people who are either under the age of 18 mm-hmm. or who suffer from a learning difficulty or mental health problem or are vulnerable in a particular way. Mm-hmm. And they would sit in with the lawyer in your police interview and they would help and assist in any way they can to um, make the whole mm-hmm. police interview process slightly more manageable for the pers- for the offender or the alleged offender. Um you know, you have your solicitor. Your solicitor should be picking things up. There's a responsibility on them to to flag up any issues. You know, um, again, that that might not be possible, but then the responsibility falls on your barristers at court. Um, there there is no ending obligation or duty. It's it's a process, and everyone along the way has to be alive to this being a potential issue. But as Leslie said, the importance of family members or friends who know this particular individual providing his legal team their legal team with this kind of information is invaluable Mm. you know there are things that we're going to overlook we're only human and we're not trained experts so any help that we can get from family friends is always going to be beneficial cool thank you for that um Would you say that the law and guidelines that are in place are clear enough and balanced with public protection and the right of victims to feel safe? Um, I I think it's an archaic um, area of law and it still sometimes feels like you're... I mean, the case law that we've touched upon, the McNaughton rules, Mm -hmm. where, you know, you've got the word insanity, for example, or the Pritchard criteria. I mean, these, these are things that have been in our legal justice system for a long time. Um, it's catching up, but I think there's a lot, especially when you think about the legal terminology and language, which is still quite old fashioned, which perhaps makes people feel uncomfortable mm. about raising mental health. You know, maybe the idea of, you know, your barrister saying, oh, we could run the insanity defence yeah, probably puts a lot of people off. So, I mean, I think that could probably do with an overhaul to make it a lot more kind of acceptable and current mm-hmm. in the eyes of the public um i don't know how you feel about well, I, I agree with that because you know it's very hard for people to think oh i'm insane you know who wants to actually 
think that mm-hmm. um or and it's i think in terms of safeguarding people um it's really a question as well as if if the system's working properly mm-hmm. um because there's you can be sentenced to the hospital order Kiara's mentioned mm-hmm. the section 37 men, men hospital order but there's also section 41 which a restriction order now that used to really be a life sentence for people it's not now it's all subject to review in the mental health tribunals but um there the responsibility shifts to medical practitioners and again they can they can only operate on the information that they have whether Mm -hmm. it's safe to release somebody um you know these restriction orders can keep people in a medical setting for a long time often longer than they would it would have been in prison um but all the all these things are quite uh, difficult, I think, because you see, there are, there are a lot of people who are, ha- it's not mental illness. They may turn up to court really drugged or really drunk, but they're not mentally ill. Mm. And they're not necessarily even alcoholics that, or, or, or drug addicted. Um, and, you know, with each client, it, it's, it's something that we we do check as far as possible, you know, is, is there more to this or whatever. But um, some people can take drink, sorry, and take, drink alcohol, I mean, and take drugs for years, but actually they're fine. They know where they are. They know. And, and so we're always, um, I'm sure you are too, as a solicitor, you're always having to um, have an eye to, to mental health issues. Um, which is why, uh, as as you were saying earlier, you know, all the help you can get from family mm-hmm. members is, you know, if because some clients can be what we see as difficult, but they may have a learning disability or, mm. or something else. Um, you know, again, recently I had a client who's autistic, but I only know that because his mother. Mm-hmm. has told the solicitor, please be careful with him because I don't mean be careful that he's dangerous, he's not, it's very nice, but please be careful how you um, deal with his case because yeah. he's not being deliberately awkward. It's mm-hmm. just he suffers from from autism mm-hmm. at this level. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, can a judge ever stop the guidelines that are in place? Yeah, so um, a judge can always depart from the guidelines, but he has to. They have to demonstrate that there are exceptional circumstances, um, and judges can be appealed um, for being too harsh, but also for being too lenient. So, um, if they do want to depart from the guidelines because they want to do take an exceptional course of action, they really have to protect themselves to show and demonstrate that there are reasons why they are departing, because otherwise someone could complain and and the sentence could be. Um, attorney general reference which is when a sentence is too lenient so if they do depart from the guidelines they can do exceptional circumstances and mental health would definitely be considered um, an exceptional circumstance but again it would depend on the reports 
Great. Um, we're coming to the end of the show now. So thank you both so much for joining thank me you. today. <laughs> thank you for listening to our podcast. We stream our daily broadcast on inspirefm.org. You'll find all our daily updates on our social media at InspireFM Luton.